Chapter 8, Church Councils, the Da Vinci Code, and Modern Scholarship. Christian faith has not centered on the historical Jesus. The Apostles' Creed moves from born of the Virgin Mary to crucified under Pontius Pilate. The Creed's omission suggests that the intervening years and activities of Jesus were of no real consequence to faith. David Kaler's book, Jesus the Prophet, His Vision of the Kingdom on Earth. The official line taken by Christianity was not directly tied to the actual words and deeds of the historical Jesus. That's from Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus, the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium. Christology, which is the study of who Jesus is in relationship to God, has entered the public domain in recent days with a vengeance. The occasion was the appearance of the best-selling book and movie by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. The plot is mostly fantasy, although I'm not sure that some audiences would know the difference between religious fact and fiction. Interestingly, a number of remarks are made by the so-called expert on the development of belief in Jesus, which bear directly on the definition of God and Jesus. They cry out for comment and clarification. They might stimulate public interest in a quest for the origins of their beliefs about God and Jesus. The character Sir Lee Teabing reports that it was the Emperor Constantine who deified Jesus and then suppressed earlier documents which had stressed the humanity of Jesus. In this way, Jesus became God. In fact, Constantine did not in any way initiate the idea that Jesus was God. He did, of course, convene and approve the church council, which fixed permanently the idea that Jesus was God, as they said at the Council of Nicaea. Quote, very God of very God. God of God can, of course, imply some subordination undefined for the Son. Tabloid religion is nothing new. From the early days of Christianity, there were apocryphal, fantasy gospels which had a powerful public appeal. The idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene is just such an imaginative tale. Books which did not qualify as Christian scripture propagated a variety of fanciful legends. In the Acts of Thomas, Jesus appeared in the form of Thomas exhorting a young couple to dedicate themselves to virginity. Sexual abstinence was a dominant theme, reflecting Platonic ideas which have affected Orthodox Christianity in different ways. One was a tendency to disparage the physical body. The apocryphal gospel of Peter disrupts the New Testament program for resurrection. Those who belong to Christ will be made alive in resurrection at Christ's future coming, 1 Corinthians 15.23. The apocryphal gospel of Peter 
describes Jesus as overruling the biblical scheme and bringing the dead to life before the resurrection. The same interference with Christian hope is popular today when the grieving are assured that their relatives have become alive in another spirit world, quote, heaven, but apart from the resurrection promised when Jesus returns. Apocryphal Gospels supplied the reader with material supposed to be fact. In one, Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath, and when challenged by Joseph, he claps his hands and clay sparrows fly off. The Da Vinci Code allows itself similar liberties. Apocryphal Gospels did not make it into the canon of Scripture. But the question is how far apocryphal, philosophically tainted ideas about God and the Son of God continue to affect the way churchgoers read the Bible. Mysterious doctrines can obviously enter the public religious consciousness from paganism. Today the public may not be able to tell the difference. There's a classic moment in the Da Vinci Code movie when a mother and child picture is presented to an audience who confidently identify the figures as belonging to Christianity. The lecturer corrects them by pointing out that the so-called Christian heroes are the pagan Isis nursing Horus. Mother and son appear in lots of pagan religious systems, and so the danger of counterfeit is very real. It threatens to confuse churchgoers and make it impossible for them to read the Bible with intelligence and understanding. Confusion over the identity of Jesus has been a feature of Christianity's long and often tangled history. The debate about who Jesus was had been going on for over 200 years before the major council at Nicaea in 325 fixed on a, quote, solution deemed final. It was during that period that the New Testament's unitary monotheism, belief that God the Father alone is truly God, John 17, 3, was gradually, not overnight, abandoned and replaced eventually by the doctrine of the triune God. An official decision about the status of the Holy Spirit, as distinct from the decision about the Father and Son, was not achieved even in 325 at Nicaea. The bishops decided to say no more than, quote, we believe in the Holy Spirit. The process by which, quote, Jesus became God was prolonged and represented the victory of one of the parties to the argument. It's a great mistake to assume, merely on the strength of a majority opinion, that it was the truth which won the day. Nor necessarily that either party, Arian or Athanasian, was working within legitimate biblical categories. It may be that the terms of the discussion had already excluded a biblical solution. The decision about the deity of Jesus was certainly not just a political one on the part of the emperor. 
As far as Constantine had a hand in the confirmation of the canon of the New Testament, rather than excluding all references to the humanity of Jesus, as Teabing said mistakenly in the Da Vinci Code movie, the emperor helped to exclude books which made Jesus barely human at all. The New Testament, as it has been handed down to us, provides the strongest evidence that the earliest followers of Jesus believed him to be a human being, supernaturally begotten, a member of the human race, certainly not a second God, part of a trinity. The dialogue in the Da Vinci Code goes like this, quote, My dear, Teabing said, until that moment in history, as to say the Council of Nicaea presided over by Constantine, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Not the Son of God? Right, Teabing said. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? A relatively close vote at that, Teabing added. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world, an entity whose power was unchallengeable. That's from Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. Though there are elements of truth here about what the bishops decided in Nicaea, the interchange introduces a fatal confusion by using the term Son of God in a sense unknown to the Bible. If we are to sort out the significance of Jesus as Son of God within the pages of the New Testament, it is necessary to show how confusingly, quote, Son of God is being used in this conversation. The term Son of God is used by the Da Vinci Code, as so often today, in a post-biblical and non-biblical sense. In the Bible, as we have seen, Son of God designates a member of the human race, a mortal. It denotes a human person with a special relationship to God. Sons of God are created human beings. The term is also applied to angels who are classified as created beings, but in the case of holy angels endowed with permanent life. Israel is called collectively the Son of God in Exodus 4, verse 22. Adam was also God's son, Luke 3, 38. Jesus is said to be, quote, God's only son and God's own son, his beloved son. By the time we arrive at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, however, the term son of God as applied to Jesus, has come to mean God the Son, a, quote, deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world. How historically accurate is this dialogue in the Da Vinci Code? 
It is quite untrue to say that believers right up to the time of the Council of Nicaea thought of Jesus as just, quote, immortal and not God the Son. The Council of Nicaea was convened to settle the major controversy about the identity of Jesus between two major rival opinions. Athanasius claimed full and eternal deity for the Son. Arius saw him as definitely subordinate to the one God, as a person created before Genesis. The council did indeed confirm by an overwhelming, not a narrow majority, that Jesus was fully deity. This was in opposition to the rival view held by many that he was not on a par with God, but had been created as God's son before the Genesis creation. This latter view, known as the Arian view, after Bishop Arius, was roundly defeated at Nicaea in 325 AD, leaving the creedal statement that Jesus must be considered, quote, God from God, that is, as deity. That view of Jesus as God the Son has remained the dominant definition of Jesus ever since that time, despite strong protests from minorities throughout all of church history. The Council of Bishops at Nicaea, presided over by Emperor Constantine, was responsible for establishing that dominant view as the official orthodox understanding of Jesus binding upon all members of the Church. The victory of the Trinitarian idea was again challenged by the Arians after Nicaea, and it took a further 60 years before Arian opposition was defeated. The Council in 325 AD did not deal with the question of how Jesus was also, obviously, a human being. Since it was clear that Jesus was also a man, a subsequent council was convened at Chalcedon in 451 AD to settle the question as to how the single person Jesus could be fully God and fully man. Without explaining how it is possible to be 100% man and 100% God, that council declared that it simply is so. That is what Christians are to believe. The decision was backed and enforced by both church and secular authorities. Dissenters were punished and banned from membership in the Christian church. The question that remained unsettled was, as Bart Ehrman says, quote, how could both Jesus and God be God if there's only one God. That's from the book Truth and Fiction in the Da Vinci Code. And how could one think of, quote, God who remained in heaven and, quote, God who came to earth without falling into bi-theism, that is, belief in two gods? The Artificial Jesus of the Councils. It was not until 451 A.D., that the Council of Chalcedon tackled the question of Jesus' quote, two natures, based on the supposition 
that he was, quote, of the same substance as God. Writers on the so-called problem of the two natures in Christ have sometimes shown an admirable candor in admitting what a tangle theology got itself into trying to describe intelligibly a person who is, quote, fully God and fully man. T.B. Kilpatrick, D.D., was writing on, quote, incarnation in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels in 1906. However remarkable these schemes for describing the person of Jesus at Chalcedon may be as intellectual efforts, and whatever value they may have in directing attention to one or another element in the complex fact of the so-called dual nature of Jesus, it is certain that they all fall under a threefold condemnation. Number one, they are dominated by metaphysical conceptions which are profoundly opposed to the ideas which prevail throughout Scripture, being dualistic to the core, whereas the ruling ideas of Scripture are synthetic and are far removed from the distinctions which mark the achievements of the Greek mind from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels in 1906. The professor exposes the popular false argument that Jesus died as a man, but not as God, that he was tempted as a man and not as God, that as a man he did not know the day of his return, but as God he did. The whole conception of Jesus as possessing two mutually incompatible natures leads to nonsense. The biblical Jesus is a unified personality. Jesus declared clearly that, quote, no one knows the day or the hour, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Mark 13, verse 32. This is a plain statement that Jesus the Son is not omniscient deity. The artificial attempts to avoid the obvious are completely unconvincing and point to the laborious struggles of those intent on reading the Trinity into the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, did not know the day of his return. Church fathers produced implausible excuses for not believing what they read in this passage. The Son really did know, they say, but was not permitted to say. It would be like a person replying no to the question whether he has any money. He does not have any money in one pocket, but he does in the other. Or a person who says he is blind when he can see with one eye and not the other. A professor who is critical of the, quote, incarnation doctrine continued, attempts to describe two natures in Christ do not correspond with or do justice to the knowledge which faith has of the personal Christ, 
separating as they do what faith grasps as a unity, while their attempted harmonies are artificial and not vital. Number three, they fail to reproduce the portrait of Christ presented in the Gospels. They utterly fail to give adequate utterance to the impression which the Christ of the Gospels makes upon the minds which contemplate him. This is true even of the Chalcedonian scheme, which in substance is repeated in many modern creeds and confessions. They describe, quote, a being who combines in inscrutable fashion divine with human properties, and of whom consequently contradictory assertions may be made, while his dual natures hold an undefined relation to one another. This is not a scheme to satisfy head or heart. From J. Oswald Dykes, The Person of Our Lord, in the Expository Times of 1905. The problem was that the Council's Jesus was a self-contradiction. He did not know, and yet really knew, the day of his return. Not only that, it remained a puzzling issue, as it still is today. How? If there's only one God, Jesus could be God in addition to his Father being God. Does that not make two gods? The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there's only one God exposes for every unprejudiced reader the fundamental mistake of the Trinity. The problem is insoluble, but the problem is the creation of the Church itself, which gave up belief in Jesus as the Davidic Lord Messiah, Luke 2, verse 11, God's Messiah, Luke 2, 26, not another person who is equally God. Covering up that error, the declaration that two persons, each of whom is God, makes one God, has been the work of learned theologians. Most church members have not challenged the obvious illogicality of saying that two X's equals one X. Many have harbored the strongest doubts, yet seem cowed into silence and compliance. Since sermons are very seldom preached on the Trinity, the whole issue tends not to be a subject of public discussion. Nevertheless, that extraordinary proposition that, quote, there is one God, yet both Jesus and the Father are God, exercises, often silently, an iron control over the churches in which millions gather every Sunday. The question is whether it is honest to saddle churchgoers with a creed about God which cannot be found in the teaching of Jesus himself, one which thus erects a confusing barrier between them and the scriptures which belong to all mankind. Being like Jesus is very much more feasible if one is allowed to think like Jesus. Thinking like Jesus begins with listening to his marvelous teaching. The noble principle that each believer 
exercises his own right to determine what he is to believe is hopelessly frustrated by the imposition of an unexplained and often uninvestigated dogma, one which dramatically affects the heart of all religion and theology. The Church attempted to resolve this problem of how two persons, each of whom is fully God, can amount to one God, by shifting the notion of God's oneness to one, quote, essence, shared equally by two and later three members of the one Godhead. It was this fatal step which set the Church's doctrine of God in direct opposition to Jesus and the Hebrew Bible's picture of God as a single divine person. When the Holy Spirit was later added the status of, quote, third person, though at Nicaea in 325 AD no attempt was made to define the status of the Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity became the permanently official orthodox description of God. Dissenters were to be stigmatized as unbelievers. The legacy of those councils ought not to be accepted uncritically. I quote, The great ecumenical councils that formulated the old theology were the scene of unchristian antagonisms and the bitter strife and fightings that were never rivaled in the history of any other religion and no religion of which history has a record was ever guilty of such cruel persecutions as Christianity, whose founder was the meek and lowly Jesus of Nazareth. The history of Christianity's so-called disciples from the fourth century down to recent times has been one to make men often blush. And the story of many of the practical fruits of the old theology is one of the saddest chapters in human annals. That's from L.L. Payne's book, A Critical History of the Evolution of Trinitarianism. The biblical God, who is defined as single by every form of words available to language, was supplanted by a tripersonal, quote, one God essence. But a, quote, essence is a disappointing and feeble substitute for the vigorous and dynamic person revealing himself as the true God of the Bible. It is to treat the public as terribly gullible, to offer them the teaching that God is, quote, one what in three who's. God is one what? Which verse tells us that? I note that God is defined as, quote, one what by James White in his The Forgotten Trinity. Hank Hanegraaff offers the same definition on radio. Back to the Da Vinci Code. This point needs to be repeated. T. Bing's account of the development of the Trinity is inconsistent and confusing in another matter of fact. He maintains that Constantine at the time of Nicaea accepted in the canon of Scripture only those Gospels which taught the deity of Jesus and that the Emperor and the Council banned Gospels which saw Jesus only as human. Quite the opposite is true. 
because the Gospels which the Council did not allow were those which made most of the deity of Jesus and allowed very little room for his humanity. Certainly Constantine, with the Council, believed that the deity of the Son in the Trinitarian sense was found in the canonical works to be known as Scripture, but no effort was made to suppress documents which portrayed Jesus as essentially mortal. Despite the confusion in terminology and errors of historical fact presented by the, quote, expert in the Da Vinci Code movie and book, they do in fact raise the basic question of how the human being, Jesus, came to be viewed as God, the second member of the Trinity. Merely stating the fact that this has happened should strike the reader as bizarre in the extreme, since, as we have seen, Jesus himself, as a Jew, loyal to the Unitarian creed of Judaism, could hardly have imagined that he had personally pre-existed as God for eternity. There's not a shred of clear evidence that Jesus ever said, quote, I am God. When challenged, he constantly protested that he was entirely dependent on his father and could do nothing by himself. These are hardly the words of a person who is trying to convince his audience that he is an eternal being, a second God in addition to the Father, overthrowing his own Jewish heritage, which he so stalwartly proclaimed as the basis of true religion. Jesus never said he was God. The churches, after Bible times, gradually developed this novel concept Jesus knew nothing of such a claim. The claim of the deity of Jesus cannot be based on his own words and should be discarded for that good reason. Unless, of course, even Jesus did not know who he was. Such a counsel of despair is, however, quite unnecessary since our New Testament documents repeatedly tell us that Jesus believed with his Jewish compatriots, that God was a single person, his Father, and that he, Jesus, was the promised Messiah of Israel. That creed is extremely simple and clear and springs off the pages of the New Testament from beginning to end. Modern Scholars and Jesus Confirmation of these facts about Jesus' own belief is provided by a leading Roman Catholic theologian and provides the clearest evidence of how far we have strayed from the faith of Jesus as recorded in the Bible. Joseph Fitzmaier writes, and I quote, A second theme of Jesus' preaching was the fundamental validity of what scripture and tradition of old had taught, Jesus repeated the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, quoted in Mark 12, 29, and acknowledged the law in the Old Testament as the source of God's will for human conduct. A third theme of Jesus' preaching was a special emphasis on God as Father, a purely Unitarian emphasis, his preaching reinforced the traditional Israelite view of God. Yahweh was still the sole 
divine being who chose Israel. That's from Fitzmaier's A Christological Catechism. Fitzmaier lists another main theme of Jesus' preaching. He claimed to be an agent of God. He then answers the question, did Jesus clearly claim to be God? With this candid reply, quote, if the question is meant to stress a clear claim, we can answer it in two ways. If the Jesus of history ever explicitly claimed to be God, the Gospels have not so presented that claim. They never put on his lips, Ego imi theos, I am God. Fitzmaier shows how unintelligible the words, I am God, would have been. Quote, would it have been possible in the monotheistic setting of pre-Christian Palestine for a Jew like Jesus to claim openly Anna Elaha, that's the Aramaic, for I am God in Greek, Ego imi Theos. It is impossible to imagine how such a statement would have been understood, given the fact that God would have meant the one God of Israel, Yahweh, the one whom Jesus himself calls Abba, or Father. This, of course, is to concede the obvious Unitarianism of the first century, of Jesus himself and of biblical times. No Jew, basing himself on the divine revelation provided by his Hebrew Bible, could possibly have imagined the Messiah to be other than a lineal descendant of Eve and of Abraham and David, supernaturally generated by God, according to Psalm 2, verse 7, and empowered as God's anointed Son. Jews knew well, as we all ought to, that descendants of David cannot at the same time predate their own ancestor. The Church, however, committed itself in perpetuity to the amazing idea that the Son of God was at the same time both older and younger than David. He was both God, who had existed from eternity, and a man conceived and born of a woman. The hair-splitting arguments which followed from this mistaken concept fill the pages of church history for centuries, and the decision to call God triune rules to this day. The Da Vinci Code introduces a vocabulary about Jesus and his so-called deity as Son of God, which conveniently brings to public attention the immense muddle over terminology and simple logic, which often blights the whole discussion about who Jesus is. Only when the terms are calmly defined can we make any progress. It has to be emphasized that, quote, Son of God, when read in the pages of the Bible, is in no way the equivalent of Son of God as later meaning God the Son. The facts are not complex. If we stay within the bounds of Scripture, Son of God refers always to created persons, never to God. Jesus claimed the title for himself in John 10.36, 
He did so in an important passage in which he rebuffed the accusations of his opponents that he was claiming to be a God in John 10.33 or God, as it might be translated. Jesus argued brilliantly that even the judges of Israel, as God's human representatives, had been entitled to the designation gods. You'll find that in John 10, verses 34 to 36, Psalm 82, verse 6. See also John 5, verses 18 to 19. The term Son of God in the Bible identifies a created person or persons. The one God, however, is of course uncreated. A firm line is thus established between the one uncreated creator and his various created beings and representatives. Son of God is a fixed term in Scripture for a person who is not God. If biblical terminology is to teach us how to think of Jesus, then we must understand that Son of God is the title which establishes that Jesus is not God, but a human creature. This point is at the root of our whole discussion. The truth about the biblical meaning of, quote, Son of God is available to the public as stated by leading experts of our day. Professor Colin Brown, systematic theologian at Fuller Theological Seminary, says, along with scores of other authorities, quote, to be a son of God, one has to be a being who is not God. That's from Colin Brown's article, Trinity and Incarnation in Search of Contemporary Orthodoxy. The truth of that proposition can be established by any reader of Scripture. One may also consult any good Bible dictionary. One will search in vain for any hint that, quote, Son of God describes an uncreated second member of the Godhead. The peril of adding gods to the one God of Jesus and Israel's creed is extreme. The addition of, quote, gods of any description to the one God of the Bible is in fact the ultimate crime against God. Readers should inspect their own thinking on this point with urgency and care. Did not Paul warn that amongst the follies committed by humankind was that of worshipping the created being in place of the Creator? See Romans 1.25. 2,000 years later, the precious biblical term Son of God has suffered severe confusion. This is because Jesus' identity has been revised by the Church and its creeds to mean God the Son. Jesus' biblical title, Son of God, has at the same time been retained but given a new non-biblical meaning. Son of God, in other words, has been removed from its biblical context, severed from its Hebrew roots, and made to express the idea of a second uncreated person, God the Son. Where terminology has been altered, a difference of meaning has naturally occurred. 
there has been a subtle and significant change of identity. Detective work is needed to expose and clear up the shift in the title given to Jesus. It was a shift so monumental that it actually led to the disturbance of the most central of all biblical truths, that the Father is, quote, the only one who is truly God. John 17, verse 3. The subtle switch of identity as between the Messiah, Son of God, and God the Son, the creation of post-biblical theologians, calls for a public investigation, since it continues to affect the thinking and spirituality of massive numbers of persons desiring to make a relationship with God, quote, in spirit and truth. John 4, verse 24. One single person is the God of the Bible. We have seen that the personal God of Israel and the Hebrew Bible is known by various titles. He is first of all the God, Elohim, who created the heavens and earth, an activity in which he was entirely unaccompanied. Speaking of himself by his personal name, Yahweh, he announced this fact in Isaiah 44, verse 24, in terms which really cannot be misunderstood. I've emphasized the singular pronouns. I, Yahweh, created all things by myself, who was with me. Some 7,000 times this same Yahweh, the God of Israel's creed, introduces himself as the one and only God. The 7,000 appearances of the so-called Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, the four-letter word rendered all caps L-O-R-D in many translations, are accompanied invariably by singular personal pronouns and by verbs in the singular. The same God speaks of himself as, quote, all alone and adds that, quote, no one is beside me, there is no other God. Every form of language available which denotes exclusive singular personality is employed in the Old Testament to describe the true God. This language is meant to fend off the idea that there could be more than one person as deity. Jewish monotheism has justly been called, quote, strict and, quote, uncompromising. It is strictly Unitarian. For this conviction, Jews were prepared to die, as were some Christians. Language has no other means of describing a single and sole person totally alone and unique in his class without rival or competitor. All this can be discovered by reading the Old Testament in any translation. Historians of Judaism, both Jewish and non-Jewish, will confirm this very simple fact. Quote, God is one and there is no one else beside him. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one Lord. Yahweh alone. I'm not assuming that monotheism is Unitarianism. I'm pointing to the thousands and thousands of texts which present us with a unitary monotheistic theology 
by equating the only God with the Father. It would seem to be a sort of dicing with theological confusion to interfere with this primary theological and biblical data. It is time for the church to retrace her steps to Jesus, the master who declared in agreement with the Jewish scribe that God is a single person, his God, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The proposition about God's unity was simple and clear enough. Young Jewish children were taught to memorize and recite the central and primary fact of true religion. It is the Shema, the quote, Hear, O Israel, of the Bible, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, repeated by Jesus as the source of the Christian faith in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, yet curiously relegated to a pre-Christian status by commentary. Jesus himself on that argument would be pre-Christian and deprived of his claim to authority over the church. By Jesus' words, we are to be judged. Compliance with his mind and teachings would seem to be the only safe policy. Jesus as a Jew never hinted that his native creed was to be interfered with in any way. When challenged about his enormous claims as God's unique, special agent, empowered to be even, quote, Lord of the Sabbath, in Mark 2.28, compare John 5, verse 18, Jesus replied that he could, quote, do nothing of himself, but only what he understood his father to be doing. John 5, verse 19. He and his father were working in complete and utter harmony as Jesus carried out the will of his father, the one God of Israel. I and the father are one, John 10 verse 30, was clearly meant to describe the perfect unity of purpose and action possible between God and himself as the human Messiah. We know that this is the meaning Jesus intended because only a few chapters later in the same Gospel of John, Jesus desires the same unity to be realized among Christians. Quote, just as the Father and I are one, so you are to be one. See John 17 verses 11 and 22. Any argument, therefore, that forces I and the Father are one to mean I and the Father are both God collapses immediately on the patent evidence that Jesus describes the unity among disciples in exactly the same language as his own unity with God. This fact leads to this conclusion. Since the disciples are to be one in purpose, not one in essence. Jesus and the Father are one would prove likewise that Jesus is not one essence with God. He must be the ideal of a human being in perfect relation to his creator. And as such, enjoying that unity with God, he wishes this also for his followers. 
just as he was, quote, sent, so he sent his disciples, John 20, verse 21. That saying should remove all substance from the frequent claim that Jesus being sent means that he was conscious before he was born. John the Baptist was, quote, a man sent from God, John 1, 6. But this does not mean that he pre-existed his birth. What distinguishes Jesus is his complete reliance on and subordination to his father, who has commissioned him as his agent. The father is greater than I. John 14, 28, I can do nothing by myself. John 5, verse 19, these sum up Jesus' uninterrupted sense of dependence on the one God. That biblical model of who Jesus is has the enormous advantage of showing what marvelous things the Creator can perform through a perfectly dedicated human person. If Jesus is God, not only is Jewish and Christian monotheism subverted and thousands of references to God as a single person overthrown, we're still Jesus' amazing accomplishment on our behalf becomes an empty charade. If he is God, he cannot be tempted, because God cannot be tempted with evil, James 1.13. And because God is immortal, according to the plain statement of 1 Timothy 6.16, the Son of God, if he is God, as orthodoxy holds, cannot by definition die. Yet Paul, unaware of any difficulty, writes that the Son of God died. Romans 5, verse 10. The best that Christian hymnology could do was to write nonsense. Quote, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." That's from the hymn by Charles Wesley, and can it be that I should gain. But on what authority our intellect, logic, and the precious gift of words to be crucified in the interest of, quote, mystery, or rather, mystification. The destruction of the meaning of words means the destruction of information, and in this case, the destruction of truth. God cannot die. The Son of God died. A world of understanding is to be drawn from these basic propositions. The falsehood that Jesus, being called Lord, proves that he is the one Lord God, needs to be challenged and dismissed. Yes, there are some Old Testament Yahweh verses fulfilled by Jesus as Yahweh's unique representative in the New Testament, but this no more makes Jesus identical in person with Yahweh than the angel of the Lord is identical with Lord God. The angel could bear the divine name with actually, I'll read that again. The angel could bear the divine name without actually being God. Quote, an agent is as his master's person, is the well-established principle known to Judaism and so obviously true of Jesus in relation to God. Jesus spoke of the persecution of Christians as the persecution of himself. Acts 9, verse 4, Acts 22, verse 7, and chapter 26, verse 14. 
This does not make Jesus and the church identical. The critically important Psalm 110 verse 1 comes into play here, and it needs massive publicity in church circles and outside. No sooner had Jesus declared the Shema to be the heart of good theology, Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, than he raises the issue about himself with a question based on Psalm 110, verse 1, and his own position in that oracle. Quote, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, both Jesus and his opponents recognize this psalm as messianic. Question is, who is this second Lord? And how can he be David's son and also his Lord? Above all, what is the status of that second Lord? The answer to the puzzle presented by Jesus is not difficult in any way. Jesus is firstly born the son of David from Mary and later elevated to the supreme position as the man Messiah at God's right hand, where he arrives in Acts 2, verses 34 to 36. The application of Psalm 110 to our Lord is one of the most outstanding features of the apologetics and theology of the earliest church. In Acts 2, verse 34, Peter regards Psalm 110.1 as prophetic of Jesus' ascension. It demonstrates the fact that the Lord Messiah has now been exalted to the Father's right hand. In Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 13, Psalm 110, verse 1, describes Jesus' continuing session at the, quote, right hand of the Father. And in Hebrews 6, verse 20, Hebrews 7, verse 17 and 21, verse 4 of the same psalm, describes Jesus' eternal high priesthood, quote, after the order of Melchizedek. In Mark 12, verses 35 to 37, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the evangelist's definitive testimony to Jesus' exaltation, justifying from Scripture the use of the title Lord for him, a title which from the start, Luke 2.11, was the characteristic description of Jesus. The use of the title did not originate in Greek-speaking Christianity, as is obvious from the Aramaic Maranatha, Our Lord Come, in 1 Corinthians 16.22. It is certain that the original and enduring basis for the title Lord, as applied to Jesus, was indeed Psalm 110, verse 1. Everyone knew, who read the Hebrew or Greek of that verse, that the My Lord, lowercase l, Adoni, was a designation of non-deity, a human superior, in the case of Jesus, a human being supremely and uniquely elevated. Mark, then, in his twelfth chapter, has portrayed Jesus as summarizing Israel's religion by quoting the Shema as the most important of all truths and then defining his own position in relation to that one God 
as the Adoni, my lowercase lord, of the famous Messianic Psalm 110 verse 1. The creed of Israel is revealed not only as belonging to the nation, but to Jesus Christ. The ultimate Christian theologian and author of the original and authentic Christian faith. That's who Jesus is, Hebrews 2 verse 3. The importance of Psalm 110 verse 1 as defining who Jesus is cannot be overemphasized. It is indicative of Christianity's reluctance to see Jesus as the messianic Lord of Psalm 110.1 that Oscar Kuhlmann remarks. All the numerous New Testament passages which mention that Jesus, quote, sits at the right hand of God come into consideration with regard to the Lordship of Christ. These ideas are a messianic application of Psalm 110. Scholars do not usually attribute sufficient importance to the fact that statements about the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God, which were very early included in the creed, formally go back to this psalm. That's from Oscar Kuhlmann's Christology in the New Testament. What Oscar Kuhlmann says here is profoundly true. The failure to understand what is meant by the Lordship of Jesus underlies the whole effort of Trinitarians to complicate the oneness of God. Professor Gregory Boyd, in his Oneness Pentecostals and the Trinity, begins with a lucid statement about monotheism. I quote, The Bible uniformly and unequivocally teaches that there is only one God. Certainly it was the proclamation, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that formed the cornerstone for everything that was distinctive about the faith of God's people in the Old Testament. The message of God's uniqueness and singularity is driven home literally hundreds of times throughout the pages of the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 42 verse 8, 43 verse 1, Obadiah 11, and Isaiah 44 verse 6. This strict monotheism is by no means forgotten when we enter the New Testament. Rather, it forms the presupposition of the Christ-centered faith articulated in the New Testament. For example, Mark 12, verse 29, 1 Corinthians 8, 4b to 6, Ephesians 4, verse 4 and verse 6, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. It is therefore an incontestable fact that the Bible is monotheistic through and through. No biblical author would have entertained the notion that there could be more than one supreme being. This is the cornerstone to ancient and contemporary Judaism and the first foundational stone to oneness theology. That's to say modalism. That's from Gregory Boyd's book, 
oneness, Pentecostals, and the Trinity. But if the strict monotheism of God's ancient people is, quote, by no means forgotten in the New Testament, how is it that the Church has in fact forgotten it by changing it radically? If that same strict monotheism was the hallmark of Jesus' theology, why do his followers not adopt it as the centerpiece of their own confession? We remind readers of the admission of the New Bible Dictionary in its article on Trinity. I quote, The Old Testament witness is fundamentally to the oneness of God. In their daily prayer, Jews repeated the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In this they confessed the God of Israel to be the transcendent creator without peer or rival. Without the titanic disclosure of the Christ event, no one would have taken the Old Testament to affirm anything but the exclusive, as to say, unipersonal monotheism that is the hallmark of Judaism and Islam. That's from the article on the Trinity in the New Bible Dictionary. Yes, indeed. But the titanic Christ event, so called by the article in the dictionary, does not apparently include the stunningly authoritative teaching of Jesus himself, the rabbi who spoke uniquely with the authority of the one God who commissioned him. It was God who said, listen to my son, Mark 9 verse 7. It was Jesus who constantly and repeatedly insisted that we are to be judged by our conformity to his words, which were the very words of his father. John's Gospel says, in fact, little else than that adherence to what Jesus taught is the criterion by which we will all be assessed. How is it, then, that the Bible dictionary, paralyzed by its own tradition, can conclude that somehow the creed of Jesus justifies a titanic departure from that creed? With the arrival of the universally acclaimed scholarly work of James Dunn, we might expect that the Christian world would be propelled into a reinvestigation of its long-cherished doctrines of God and his Son. In his widely acclaimed Christology in the Making, Professor Dunn writes, I quote, The confession that God is one is clearly Jewish. Compare particularly Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and James 2.19. Paul starts from the common ground of the basic monotheistic faith. Quote, there is one God, the Father. Paul may intend, 1 Corinthians 8.6b, to be a statement about Christ's present lordship. Lord was a title Jesus received at his exaltation by virtue of his resurrection, Acts 2.36, Philippians 2.9-11, and compare Romans 10 verse 9, and 1 Corinthians 16.22. It was the exalted Lord who had supplanted all other lords. 
and absorbed their significance and rule in regard both to the cosmos and to redemption. 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6. Likewise, the addition of, quote, we, to both lines of verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 8, may well indicate that Paul is speaking primarily about the new creation and the new understanding and new state of affairs brought about for believers by Christ's lordship, which would be nothing new, incidentally, if Jesus was already Lord in Genesis, about the relation between God, Christ, and believers and created things that now pertains. In other words, we may have to recognize, says James Dunn, that Paul is not making a statement about the act of creation in the past, but rather about creation as believers see it now, that just as they have found their own true being and meaning through Christ, so faith has enabled them to see that all things find their true being and meaning through Christ. That's from Professor James Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. Professor Dunn continues, I quote, Paul is not thereby abandoning his monotheism, and he seems to recognize no such tension in his affirmation of Jesus' lordship elsewhere. Romans 15, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, 11.31, Ephesians 1, 3 and 17, Colossians 1, 3, even Philippians 2, 11, quote, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Certainly his splitting of the creative power of God between God the Father and Christ the Lord is precisely what we find in the wisdom writings of pre-Christian Judaism. 1 Corinthians 8 Verse 6b is not, in fact, a departure from Jewish monotheism, but asserts simply that Christ is the action of God. Christ embodies the creative power of God. End of quotation from Christology in the Making. From the beginning of his existence, Jesus was evidence of the creative power of God, reminding us of Psalm 104, verse 30. Quote, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. The procreation of the Son of God, as described in detail by Matthew and Luke, marks the beginning of a grand renewal still in progress. Paul did not give up for one moment the strict monotheism of his Jewish heritage. So says one of the world's top experts on who Christ is in the New Testament. Paul, indeed, is a superb New Testament theologian, as was Jesus before him. Paul had been trained as a Jew in the top school of the day. Despite his dramatic conversion from persecutor of Jesus and murderer of Christians to passionate protagonist of Jesus, one conviction of Paul never changed. He believed to his dying day in the non-Trinitarian creed of his Jewish heritage. For Paul, indeed, the creed of the Hebrew Bible, the creed affirmed by Jesus Christ, was, logically enough, the Christian creed. Dunn expressed the point concisely, quote, 
The Jewish scriptures were fundamental to the self-understanding of every first-century Christian church, but the focus of revelatory significance lay in the whole event of Christ. That's from James Dunn's book, Unity and Diversity in the New Testament. It is obvious, however, that churches are not measuring up to their cherished claim to be, quote, going by the Bible, the principle of sola scriptura. They are evidently failing to meet the claim that biblical theology must, quote, expound the theology found in the Bible in its own historical setting and its own terms, categories, and thought forms. That quotation then is from George Ladd in his A Theology of the New Testament. Christians are failing to do this at the most fundamental level. They are not reciting and following the creed of Jesus or of Paul. Professor Dunn says, quote, traditional Christianity wants to say much more about Christ than merely to affirm the unity between the earthly Jesus and the exalted Christ. That's from Dunn's book, Unity and Diversity. Affirming that the risen Christ was first the Jesus who walked the earth hardly needs to be said, unless one balks at the New Testament accounts. It is patently obvious that the writers of the New Testament think that the risen Jesus is the Jesus who first lived on earth. But what is this, quote, much more, which the churches want to say about Jesus? Dunn says, and I quote, The church wants to say that he is divine, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man. A striking expression of this is the simple statement adopted by the World Council of Churches. For the participating churches, the minimal Christian confession meant accepting, quote, our Lord Jesus Christ as God and Saviour. End of quotation. But have churches faced the fact that Jesus did not believe himself to be part of the Godhead, that he recited the Unitarian creed of his Jewish heritage, and that he said that this was the most important key to all sound theology? Jesus summarized the attainment of eternal life as coming to know the Father as, quote, the only one who is truly God, John 17, 3. The Father is here said to be a single person as well as the one person who is truly God. And this is reported by John, writing late in the New Testament period. Jesus' unitary statement is directly contradicted by the Trinity, which states that God is three persons in one essence. Have those clergy who assemble as the World Council of Churches faced the fact that Paul was as strictly monotheistic as Jesus? Well may Professor Dunn say, quote, it is not clear whether traditional Christology has firm roots in earliest Christianity, end of quotation. I think the evidence is simple and overwhelming that in respect of the creed, it does not. 
Dunn issues a salutary warning about reading the later creed back into the Bible in order to provide reassurance that we are following Jesus. I quote, we should perhaps repeat the warning given at the beginning of chapter 3, that in trying to reach back to the beginnings of Christological thought in the first century, we must not read back the later conclusions of the classic Christological debates. We must not assume that everywhere we will find a latent orthodoxy waiting to be brought to light. Otherwise, we cannot handle the New Testament material without prejudice. But just that mishandling of the New Testament goes on day after day and has for centuries. When earnest evangelicals ransack the Bible for isolated texts, often only from John, ignoring John 17 verse 3, to produce the, quote, God Jesus, second member of the Trinity. It does not seem to occur to them that the creed recited and affirmed by Jesus, the creed of Israel, ought to have put an end to this exhausting and tedious effort to make Jesus believe what he did not believe and what God himself does not believe, that he is three persons, nor that his uniquely begotten Son is co-equally and co-eternally God. God himself has never been a Trinitarian. Professor Dunn's warning is particularly telling. I quote, He went as the period of Christian beginnings with the classic formulations of Christian orthodoxy ringing in his ears is hardly in a position to catch the authentic tones of first-century Christian thought, should they be different. We must rather put ourselves as best we can in the position of first-century Jews with their strong tradition of monotheism and try to hear with their ears the claims of Jesus and of the first Christians. A good place to start would be to hear the Hear, O Israel, of Jesus' own faith. Commentaries on Mark's Gospel find themselves in a strange state of uncertainty and confusion when dealing with the embarrassing fact that Jesus, quote, in his statement of the first commandment, stands foursquare within the orbit of Jewish piety. That's a quotation from Hugh Anderson's book, The Gospel of Mark. But why do Jesus' followers not stand in that same grand tradition of unitary monotheism modelled by Jesus? Hugh Anderson seems to make nothing of the importance of Jesus' confession here. He adds that Mark's reporting of Jesus saying here, quote, goes back to oral tradition passed on by a church that did not any longer recite the Shema. But who said? that the New Testament church no longer recited the Shema. Anderson points out that Jesus gives us, quote, an almost word-for-word -word citation of the two Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. He then says of the former text, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4-5, defining the true God, 
that it was, quote, at the heart of Jewish piety, and that both texts about God and loving one's neighbor were, quote, much canvassed by the rabbis. On what basis can commentary declare that Mark's church had given up on the creed of Jesus? Was not Mark an evangelist for the faith as having its source in Jesus? Can the church afford to disregard what Jesus announced as the greatest of all the commandments? The early church was deeply impressed by and devoted to Jesus, the rabbi and lord of the Christians. Later, as the church became loosed from its moorings in the Jewish atmosphere of Jesus, the creed of Israel was abandoned. Anderson helpfully points out that, quote, the scribe who spoke to Jesus wholly endorses what Jesus had said and adds that faithfulness to the twofold commandment, quote, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. What can be said about Paul? Did he advance beyond the precious creed of Jesus? Did Paul lead the Christian faith away from Jesus? into belief in a God Jesus did not know? Professor Dunn was asking the question in 1977. Quote, should we then say that Jesus was confessed as God from earliest days in Hellenistic Christianity? That would be to claim too much. That's from James Dunn's book, Unity in Diversity. Those early Christians did not teach that Jesus was God himself, as is now required of members in Christian churches. Professor Dunn explains, quotation, the emergence of a confession of Jesus in terms of divinity, he does not mean here deity, as we shall see, was largely facilitated by the extensive use of Psalm 110 verse 1. From very early on, most clearly in Mark 12, 36, Acts 2, 34 and following, and 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and Hebrews 1, 13. The Lord says to my Lord, note the lowercase l on Lord there, as correctly rendering the Hebrew word Adoni, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Dunn's comment is precisely to the point. The importance of this psalm lies in the double use of Kyrios, or Lord. The one is clearly Yahweh, but who is the other? That question, when answered properly, will lead to a revolution in the Christian faith as we know it. So who is this at the right hand of Yahweh? Quote, clearly not Yahweh, as Professor Dunn admits, but an exalted being whom the psalmist calls Kyrios. Paul calls Jesus Kyrios, says James Dunn, but seems to have marked reservations about actually calling him God. Reservations? How could Paul possibly imagine two persons, both of whom are equally God? We note now the further conclusions of Dunn about Paul's view of who Jesus was. It is likely to be embarrassing to the, quote, received view of Jesus as fully God.
Paul refrains, James Dunn says, from praying to Jesus. More typical of his attitude is that he prays to God through Christ. Romans 1 verse 8, Romans 7 25, 2 Corinthians 1 20, and Colossians 3 17. For at the same time as he affirms that Jesus is Lord, he also affirms God is one. 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, Ephesians 4, 5-6. That's from James Dunn's book, Unity and Diversity. Dunn's point is straightforward, but with explosive potential to change the face of the traditional creed. Dunn goes on, I quote, Here in Paul, Christianity shows itself as a developed form of Judaism, with its monotheistic confession as one of the most important parts of its Jewish inheritance. For in Judaism, the most fundamental confession is, quote, God is one, quote, there is only one God, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hence also in Romans 3.30, Galatians 3.20, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, and James 2 verse 19. Within Palestine and the Jewish mission, such an affirmation would have been unnecessary. Jew and Christian shared a belief in God's oneness. But in the Gentile mission, this Jewish presupposition within Christianity would have emerged to prominence in the face of the wider belief in God's many. The point for us to note is that Paul can hail Jesus as Lord not in order to identify him with God, but rather, if anything, to distinguish him from the one God. That's from James Dunn's book, Unity and Diversity. Dunn then strengthens his point by referring to another statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28 where Jesus is subjected to the one God, he is certainly not seen as, quote, co-equal God, as required by the traditional later creed. Dunn is quite clear that Jesus was no believer in the Trinity. Quote, there is no good evidence that Jesus thought of himself as a pre-existent being. No evidence, thus, of Jesus making any claim to be God. But woe betide the church member who expresses his doubt about the deity of Jesus. How far we have come from the first century faith of Jesus and Paul. But is anyone in the pews in any way exercised by this amazing discrepancy over the creed? In a much later writing, in 1998, discussing the full range of Paul's theology, Professor Dunn concludes, quote, The Christological reflection evident within Paul's theology is held within the bounds of his inherited monotheism. Jesus as Lord does not infringe on God as one and even the highest accolade given to the exalted Christ is to the glory of God the Father, as in Philippians 2.11. That's from James Dunn's book, 
the theology of Paul the Apostle. In a section invitingly entitled Jesus as God, question mark, Dunn discusses Paul's deliberate teaching about Christian monotheism as distinct from pagan belief in many gods. Quote, in an astonishing adaptation of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Paul attributes the lordship of the one God to Jesus Christ, and yet his confession of God as one is still affirmed. Evidently, the lordship of Christ was not thought of as any usurpation or replacement of God's authority, but expressive of it. That's from James Dunn's book, The Theology of Paul, the Apostle. Paul, in fact, has not given up Jewish-Christian monotheism. He has not revised it in any way. He has not contradicted or expanded the creed of Jesus himself. To have done so would have thrown his readers into hopeless confusion about who God is. Paul consistently thinks of Jesus as the Lord Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Messiah. And he is the one Lord Jesus Messiah, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, head of the new humanity in Christ, the firstborn of the new creation, who is kept quite distinct from the one God, the father of monotheism. The amazing new thing that has happened is not that the Jewish creed has been expanded to include a second person as deity, but that God has elevated a unique man, his son, to the position of honor at God's right hand. God has thus demonstrated his purpose for the man Messiah as head of the new creation. Jesus is still a man, however elevated. The full glory of the position of the Messiah is the theme of Paul's writing, but his theology is collapsed if it is suggested that elevating the Messiah means compromising the unique deity of the Father. And if, after all, Jesus was from the beginning God himself, the glory of Paul's faith is that the Messiahship of Jesus is given its full dimensions while the position of the one God who planned it all remains, thankfully, intact. Paul really could not have asserted his unitary monotheism more clearly. Quote, For us there is no God but the one God, the Father. Combining 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6. Jesus is God's chief agent, now coordinated with the Father. Jesus is directly involved in the new creation in preparation for his coming rule in the kingdom of God on earth. Certainly, Jesus the Messiah is uniquely associated in heaven with the Father. But the Father is still the one God, besides whom there is no other. The astounding truth to be noted is that there is now an exalted human being intimately associated with the one God, his Father. The biblical story is thus about the staggering destiny of the virginally begotten Son of God and his meteoric exaltation 
to the second place in the universe besides the one God of Judaism and original Christianity. On the other hand, to have God exalted to the place of God, one God beside a second God, ruins the point of the New Testament and deprives Jesus of his extraordinary achievement and God of his magnificent plan to immortalize Jesus as a human, as the forerunner and pioneer of many other sons currently in process and awaiting immortality at the resurrection, not before. Jesus is indeed the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. Romans 8, verse 29. He shares with them membership of the human race. There's a repeated formula about God and Jesus which occurs in the letters of Paul. The apostle defines God in strict monotheistic fashion as, quote, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not the Father of God. God is the Father of the Lord Messiah, as the rest of the New Testament declares. Dunn points out that, quote, even as Lord, Jesus acknowledges his Father as his God. Here it becomes plain that Kyrios, Lord, is not so much a way of identifying Jesus with God, but if anything more, a way of distinguishing Jesus from God. That's from Professor Dunn's book, Unity and Diversity. This truth needs to ring out amongst Bible readers and churchgoers. May the day come when the normal way of identifying the followers of Jesus will be by their deliberate distinguishing Jesus from God. Paul sets the example, following Jesus and his creed. God is the head of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, the Lord of all, the Messiah, has been given his lordship by God. Imagine how destructive of this amazing truth would be the idea that Jesus already had a co-equal lordship with his Father from eternity. The biblical story would lose its gripping point. The dramatic career of a uniquely begotten human creature on his way to supreme exaltation at the right hand of the one God. The Pauline teaching is that Jesus is the man who fulfilled the destiny originally assigned to Adam, that of ruling the world as the one God's vice-regent. This is the overarching point of New Testament Christianity promising to other human beings the prospect of following Jesus, the pioneer human being, to glory as rulers of the future kingdom on earth. Matthew 19, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Revelation 2, verses 26, and chapter 3, verse 21, and so on. This is the theme of the much-neglected Christian gospel of the kingdom of God, preached as the central saving message of Jesus and by Paul, following the orders of Jesus in the Great Commission of Luke 4.43, Luke 8, verse 1, 
Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verses 24 and 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, and so on. What then of the Yahweh texts applied to Jesus? Dunn has the obvious answer. The only obvious resolution of the tension set up by Paul's talk of Jesus as Lord and I say, is there in fact any tension here, except the problem caused by confusing later views of Jesus as Lord God. So the only resolution of that tension is to follow the logic suggested by his reference to Yahweh texts to Jesus. That is, that Jesus' lordship is a status granted by God, a sharing in his authority. It is not that God has stepped aside and Jesus has taken over. It is rather that God shared his lordship with Christ without it ceasing to be God's alone. That's from the Theology of Paul by Professor Dunn. The marvelous truth of the Bible story is the sharing of the glory of the one God with his chosen creature and creatures not the sharing of God with God, which would cause a breach in the fundamental monotheism of the Bible, so evidently held to by Jesus and Paul. To make Paul a proponent of a revision of the creed of Israel is to pit Paul against Jesus and both against the creed of Israel. No such suggestion is in the minds of the canonical writers. No theory of progressive revelation, as might be applied to the issue of the works of the law under the new covenant, is thinkable in the case of the definition of God. Paul is, from start to finish, a unitary monotheist, just as Jesus was. God is, quote, the God of our fathers, Acts 24, verse 14, and the same God of the Jews is the God of the Gentiles, Romans 3, verse 29.